1: Progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to.
1: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now.
2: You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I'm Katie Rich. It's been a while since uh, our last episode was the immediately post Emmys episode, uh, but I'm back here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And then joining us again are Awards Insider colleagues, David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. Um, well, David and Rebecca, I, it feels like it's been a while because I went to Los Angeles since uh, we last did this podcast and got to hang out with you guys in person, finally, <laughs> which really uh, says something about our pandemic age, um, which was great. And it now really feels like uh, award season is properly underway now that we've all you know joined forces. And it also feels that way because the New York Film Festival is underway. Um, Richard, you're the only one of us who is there because you are in New York. Um, is there that like crisp fall feeling on the steps of Lincoln Center right now? Does it all feel like it's happening?
3: Yeah, it does. It's always, sort of. I mean, it was such a, a missed early fall ritual last year. But, you know, uh, I went to the opening night movie, Macbeth, it, it, at the press screening in the morning. And you're standing there and all the um, the ballet academy kids are streaming past you. And just like Lincoln Center feels really like alive with life, which was a great feeling. And then later that night, uh, I went to the opening night party at Tavern on the Green, where, you know, it was always kind of this fun coming together of... You know, people who are sort of involved in the, in the, the kind of New York side of the film industry and various other things. So, yeah, it felt uh, really exciting. I just wish that Macbeth had felt a little more exciting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I should say before I get too far into New York Film Festival I neglected to talk about what else we're talking about in the show which is um, some other fall movies, James Bond and then uh, speaking of New York, the Tonys um, Richard, you and I and Chris Murphy talked about that um, earlier, but back to New York Film Festival Richard, you saw Macbeth, David, you also saw Macbeth in Los Angeles, um, I mean, I can't think of a better movie to open New York Film Festival like big, stern, theater Francis Frances McDormand, like Denzel Washington, both have strong theater credits um, but it didn't, it didn't land for you, huh, Richard?
3: I kind of just felt, despite some interesting, you know, like some pretty looking filmmaking, I kind of felt like this should be opening at a theater 20 blocks south. You know, like (laughs) it it just felt like there was not much of a sort of case made for why it should have been a movie again it looks great cuz it's a coen brother but i don't feel like he reinvented any wheels he he's more paying homage i think to older films like bergman's kind of you know expressionism and orson wells's own macbeth movie um, than he is macbeth the text and i feel like it would do maybe fare a little better on stage. Um but you know there is there are some there are some great things to like uh, to appreciate about it. Um I think a lot of the supporting performances are really good uh from a lot of you know stage veterans. But as as sometimes happens when you cast huge A-listers in well this is a film but you know a theater piece, something based on theater anyway. I feel like they get kind of they kind of fade into the scenery while the supporting uh people shine.
1: Hmm. Um David, you were a bigger fan of Macbeth, right?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I'm was i pretty much the <laughs> the, definite audience for this movie, but um, I think some of the things Richard's talking about worked for me in a particular way. Um, like, I thought Denzel's scaled-back performance was really interesting and um, not what I expected, and it really worked for me. And I, I think it is is—it is very exercise-y in feeling the whole way through, but I did appreciate the general... I actually felt like he really did stick to the language pretty closely in the way he sort of brought that forward and, and combine that with really beautiful imagery and kind of felt to me like an enhancement in a lot of ways. Um, it really worked for me and I I thought everyone was really great in it. Catherine Hunter is incredible, Mm -hmm. uh, as the witches and, um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a big movie. I think Katie, to your point, like it doesn't feel like this sort of big epic tragedy to open a film festival. It is a smaller kind of movie and feeling. I think that's pretty intentional. And yeah, it worked for me really well, actually.
3: I I think it does. um, And this has been, I've I've seen some good Shakespeare productions in the last, I don't know, six, seven years um, that do similar things. It it makes the language really legible. You know, I, I think that, Macbeth is a, is the shortest Shakespeare tragedy, so it, it is kind of an, an easier play than, say, Hamlet. But in other ways, in terms of the language, it can it's a bit denser, uh, I find anyway. And I, I really feel like you totally get what's going on, and and not not just sort of in a general sense, but in a specific you know line by line sense. So that is absolutely credit to Cohen and everything. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I I, I guess maybe it was watching Shakespeare at 10 in the morning. Maybe that's a bad idea.
1: (laughs) The bloody, like, broody Shakespeare, too, because I think you should watch Midnight.
3: Yeah, I just felt a little a little underwhelmed, but you know, again, Catherine Hunter, amazing. Uh, Corey Hawkins is great as Macduff. Uh, Moses Ingram from uh, Queens Gambit has one great scene as Lady Macduff. Um, you know, uh, there's an actor, Alex Hassel, I think his name is, uh, who plays Ross, and he's this mesmerizing kind of androgynous figure hovering around the film. And um, yeah, I think there again, I think the supporting performances really really uh, stand out. I just felt that McDormand and Washington both formidable actors and Washington in particular known to be a terrific Shakespeare actor. They just, they play it a little casual and, you know, you get, I don't, they don't need to be emoting, you know, old, you know, old school style, but, you know, I want to feel tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I want to feel out damn spot, you know, and I didn't quite, um, they didn't quite register as potently as I hoped they would.
1: Hmm. Um, I mean, to get down to what we do on the show, which is speculate wildly about awards that will happen in eight months. Like it does sound like Denzel Washington doing Macbeth is as powerful a potential Oscar force as we thought it might be. I
4: think he's going to be nominated. I don't know that the movie will have a broad enough appeal number 1 and that the performance to Richard's point is big enough to be competitive for the win. Um but I do think he's pretty safely in the in the five.
1: I mean, this is the uh, this is the question I think is going to dominate a lot of the season. And you can see in the New York Film Festival lineup, like, is it movies that are going to hit with a very specific and very small audience? Like, what are the like big picture broad hits going to be? Um, It sounds like Macbeth might be one many of the kind of more niche ones that are out there this year.
3: I mean, I think that people flocking to Apple TV Plus to watch Ted Lasso in the morning show are gonna go right and watch a square aspect <laughs> ratio black and white Macbeth. I think that totally tracks for me.
1: Listen, I just watched Foundation, which is like you no know, Apple's big new expensive show. And like I don't know who's going from Ted Lasso to that either. So the, the strategy is really all over the place. Um, we should talk about the rest of the New York Film Festival lineup, since as usual, there's this kind of huge, broad swath of movies out there uh, a lot of stuff we talked about from telluride like power of the dog come on come on um some stuff from can memoria um Titan, parallel mothers i mean richard you have seen a lot of the stuff that's here already but is there anything that's standing out for you in terms that you've already seen or that you're looking forward to
3: i'm really looking forward to parallel mothers um i have not seen that yet and it feels like oh, that wasn't it like...
1: can was it i just i just misspoke didn't I? it was
3: at venice it was at it venice, was at venice. Yeah. got it okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to that because it seems to be, I mean, Penelope Cruz, uh, and Almodovar, like they, you know, obviously have a long, long working relationship, but this seems like maybe like from what I've heard, like the best of their collaborations in a while. So, um, and the story sounds intriguing and, um, I don't know, I just, I'm liking this kind of like, you know, third act of Almodovar in terms of his filmmaking, where it's a little melancholy, but kind of also returning to this, some of this sort of. Not soapiness or melodrama, but whatever the, the quality of some of his earlier films. I think we saw that with, um, you know, the Antonio Banderas film a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, David, you talked to both of them for a piece on Parallel Mothers not so long ago, so it, it does seem like that that melancholy is right there.
4: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, without spoiling too much, it's probably my favorite Penelope Cruz performance in a Moldovar movie, and um, he really brings things out of her that I don't think another director. Um, has so far, um, and she herself said that to me. So there's there's a mutual understanding there um, that translates nicely in this movie.
1: Um, Rebecca, is there anything you're seeing, you know, from a distance from the New York Film Festival lineup that maybe you've seen earlier or intrigued by that um, we kind of want to see how it fares when it goes in front of a big audience at this festival? I think there's a lot that's coming
2: out of either Telluride or Venice that it's interesting to see if the buzz is going to keep building. I know Flea was like a big talking point at Telluride and is also playing in New York and I, I i for me it just feels like those ones that are on the next step of their festival journey and just to see if the buzz keeps building is is most interesting to me not as much the new stuff i am seeing macbeth on friday at 10am and now i'm a little worried that 10am <laughs> is not the time to see <laughs> it. on a friday <laughs> <laughs> on a friday so i'll i'll get back to you guys on how i feel about the breakfast with macbeth but uh yeah, it's mostly the stuff that's, you know, on its third festival that I'm curious to see how people uh, react. we yeah. hadn't
3: screened yet at the by the time the, the opening night party happened. Um, but like a lot of people I spoke to were really excited about Flea. And mm-hmm. the, and I yep. think the reactions to that just came out yesterday, I think maybe that was the first press screen or something. Anyway, and those seem good. Red Rocket seemed to be playing really well, which I think is fun. So, yeah, there's good there's interesting news coming out of it out of the festival.
1: I've seen a lot of people talking about souvenir part two, which I guess isn't a surprise because mm. the souvenir had such a huge fan base and it played really well at Cannes. Um and I like again, like I don't know how big the audience for that is, but it seems like the people who know what they want from the souvenir are really getting what they want in that one.
4: Yeah, that in Bergman Island too, I thought played mm-hmm. quite well in New York.
1: Yeah. Flea is really interesting to me because I saw that as part of the virtual Sundance, you know, a thousand years ago. And it felt like it was something, and we talked about it then, like, what is Buzz when nobody's actually in the same place? But it felt like it really had that. And, and that got picked up by Neon, or maybe they had it at Sundance already. But, you know, Neon, up, yeah. Neon, the people who made Parasite Best Picture winner, like with something as powerful as that movie, because it's it's really good. Uh, that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch.
4: Yeah, there's a full press for that one. I'm I'm really interested in those Sundance movies that are kind of having this late second wind i mean you have flea which beyond doc is also a contender and animated and maybe even picture if if neon can really push it that far um and then you have passing which was i think the biggest acquisition out of sundance Mm -hmm. in january um and netflix is putting that in the new york film festival uh, ahead of a campaign particularly for ruth nega and then you have um movies like mass which haven't had a huge um presence even on this uh, fall circuit but have big baby performances and and uh, and Martha Plimpton really work in the campaign circuit. So mm-hmm. um, those movies are still around too. And and I think New York brings them all together in an interesting way where it's things we've talked about more recently, things that are brand new, and things that have been kind of bubbling around for a while now.
2: Yeah, I think there's nothing I admire more than a Sundance debut that can <laughs> keep its momentum for literally an entire year to the Oscars. Plus, so, Yeah, plus, plus now. So those are the ones that, have the uh, most talented uh, PR and awards teams in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I,
3: th- I think the biggest acquisition was CODA, right? So oh, maybe okay, CODA yeah. stars too. but you know, it's interesting talking about these other Sundance films that have had this kind of relatively more leisurely, like, Oh, we'll come, we'll go to do another festival and, you know, build buzz. You kind of wonder if like maybe CODA should have been held for yeah. some fall festivals rather than premiering in August. Um, because I feel like I, I heard good things about it when it came out, but like, maybe it could have been a bit louder or, or sort of or, or bigger in terms of its um, response and, and would would have been had it
4: had more time to build. Yeah, yeah I think interesting challenge for Apple having multiple contenders this year is whether people are actually seeing them um, and especially when you kind of premiere a big potential um, contender in August, um, what that looks like I do not know. <laughs> yeah. The festival also features diverse vendors, as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
3: Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
1: Um, well, actually, speaking of Apple, I wanted to, you were talking about them having multiple contenders this year, and they are one of the, uh, they have one of the handful of movies we haven't seen uh, in Swan Song, the Mahershala Ali movie that kind of got added to their lineup relatively recently. Um, but we also just got to look at one of the biggest ones I think we've all had our eye on, which is Licorice Pizza, which um, passed my test of like, is my husband who does not write about movies interested in it? And he was like, I got to see that movie. So one audience member down. Um, did that trail I mean, it's a trailer, we obviously don't know a ton about it. Um, we don't really Even have a good sense of like how big Bradley Cooper's role is. He was very showy in the trailer itself. But did it? uh, Did that trailer track with what you guys were expecting from this um, pretty major movie coming later this fall that none of us have seen, that no one we know has seen, as far as I know?
4: There was a kind of there was well there was there was a kind of uh, there have been such quiet whispers about this movie being really good that's been so hard to take seriously or track, but that I've definitely sort of lodged. And Mm -hmm. so seeing this trailer, um, I think bore some of that out I mean it looks beautiful it looks uh very PTA in the vein of more her- inherent vice boogie nights side of things mm-hmm. maybe um which you know those films didn't have as much success with um Oscars as others like Phantom Thread or There Will Be Blood um but it just looks yeah I mean I think there's a lot of poignancy in having Cooper Hoffman in the lead role um Philip Seymour Hoffman's son and it's got you know maya rudolph pops up and sean penn pops up in addition to bradley cooper so there's a lot of intrigue there and true to form it, it gives precious little away um so there's there's i think a lot of a lot still to be answered but it certainly gets you gets you interested it's intriguing yeah. that bradley cooper is playing john peters right
3: like yeah. um yeah. barbara streisand's yes, former <laughs> hair designer turned producer which prompted me to go watch uh, that kevin smith story about working on the superman film with john peters which Mm. i mean it's a lot of kevin smith so i don't know it's not for everybody (laughs) but like it is an amusing and interesting story about a very eccentric hollywood figure um i just really 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 do not want to say the phrase licorice
4: pizza for the next six months
1: that's that's the thing i'm dreading (laughs) i miss
4: the soggy bottom era
1: right (laughs) that was worse maybe (laughs) (laughs) the
3: the jokes were better though (laughs) exactly the jokes were, the jo- the jokes were better exactly <laughs>
1: we'll just all call it the PTA, right? For the entire season. Yeah. be very
3: can about it. Yep.
1: It's like how we call the the lost daughter the Maggie. You just kind of have to go with it. Uh, I wound up on John Peter's Wikipedia page because I'm fascinated by this as well. And I had forgot that he's a producer on Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born because he owned the rights from the 70s. Uh, And so Bradley Cooper had to come out and like, because John Peter's had a um, sexual assault allegations against him or uh, sexual misconduct allegations. So Bradley Cooper basically had to come out and be like, I didn't know. And now he's playing him. So he's going to have that conversation again, which is just really interesting to think about in the context of an awards campaign. But I think that John Peters is a fascinating character. And again, from the like five combined seconds of Cooper's performance we saw in that trailer, it looks like there's a lot to do there with that role.
2: And this is Cooper Huffman's debut and he's obviously the lead in this film and, you know, with the relationship his dad had with PTA, I just think it's, it feels very special to see him in that role. And I, and mm-hmm. you know, you yeah. can see like glimmers of Philip Seymour Hoffman's face sometimes, it's it's a little eerie, but I think it's going to yeah. be great to watch.
1: And it made me think of Almost Famous uh, for the, you know, uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman 70s era thing. Like, I don't think it's going to be as sweet as that, but maybe a little bit sweeter than Phantom Thread for, for Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yes. Yeah. I, I'm also a little confused. I just looked up Cooper Hoffman on Google and he's actually a teenager i thought you had to be like 27 or 8 to play a teenager on screen <laughs> this is very confusing
1: well there is alana heim who uh is in her 20s and i but think i
3: think she's playing older
1: this is what i can't right? fig- like it seems like she may be a little bit older she uh she will be 30 this year and is playing a um youthful person maybe not fully a teenager
4: yeah, she makes a comment in the trailer about hanging out with fifteen-year-olds. So, yeah, right. she's probably at least in her early twenties. Um, and I will say that there are, you know, when the trailer dropped, I think people were definitely paying attention in terms of competitors and things like that. One um, source at a studio told to me, "Never underestimate PTA that afternoon." So, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
4: I think that maybe there was a little, a little uh, nervousness um, about maybe a late-breaking big contender dropping.
1: I mean, again, like Phantom Thread, like it showed up so late in the season and no one yep. really knew what to make of it. And then all of a sudden Leslie Manville gets the Oscar nomination that like really nobody expected. And that movie is like prickly. You know, there's not <laughs> something you would think the Oscars would jump all over. So, yeah, never underestimate PTA seems like a pretty wise move. Um, To go back to uh, the news cycle again, there is a very like super nerdy detail thing that this is the place where we're going to get into it, um, which is that the Directors Guild is temporarily altering their eligibility for 2021, basically saying that you can have a day and date release and get a DGA nomination. And basically all the writing about this just had a picture of Denis Villeneuve because he seems like the person <laughs> who would be most impacted by this for Dune. Um I mean, it does seem relevant. It does, I don't see this as like a slippery slope thing where all of a sudden, you know, all Netflix movies can be eligible for DGA rules. Do you guys see this as just kind of bowing to the reality of the year and then they'll just go right back to it whenever they can?
2: Yeah, I think they're bowing to the reality of Delta because it was just in June that they reinstated their original role. and. And rule and June June was when we were like things are gonna get better yeah. and and then Delta just like came in and changed everything again so I feel like it's smart of them and I think fair to do that this year especially but I would assume next year <laughs> they'll go back to their regular rule but yeah I think you know it's for Denis and and like King Richard also is gonna get the yeah. um dual release so you know that's also gonna be a, a strong contender and I think part of that conversation as well. So
3: I would love if that, you know, meant something good for the humans, which I was, uh, I don't know if that's yeah. directing is its strongest, uh, you know, thing to campaign for, but I was a little scared about that film's fate once the Showtime thing was announced. So, but I don't, I mean, I think that's going to be pretty minor key no matter what. But yeah, I guess we just, you know, this year had to be a bit more, um, they had to, to, Widen the eligibility again because, like you said, Rebecca of Delta, I think it's really good news for Kissing Booth three. I think that's huge mm. for that movie because <laughs> I was worried that was going to fall through the cracks. It's just a Netflix. Movie. Isn't that
1: like the? Isn't the second one Netflix had that chart of like the most watched movies, and it was like The Irishman number three, and The Kissing Booth two number four, right below it. Which um honestly, I, I thought The Kissing Booth would have had more audience than The Irishman. Personally, <laughs> <laughs> it's unclear how much of the movie they they count in that. In that chart. I think
4: that that chart was minutes, and so anyone who actually watched The Irish. Watch oh yeah you can like
1: <laughs> you can like double the amount of time that you count for a bird box so i th-
4: yeah I, th- I think that definitely
3: elevated it on the kissing booth too is five hours long so i i don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the the endless epic that we were all waiting for um okay so we were talking about dune to talk about another blockbuster uh it's kind of a last of our little news tidbits um no time to die is actually coming out i think plenty of us were maybe skeptical that it would just get pushed off the release schedule forever because it seems it's just been such a like football because of pandemic um and richard and rebecca you guys both saw it the reviews are out um including yours richard and i like don't really want to be spoiled and like there's a certain extent to which like you can't be spoiled because it's a James Bond movie and you know he runs around the world and shoots guns but I'm just I'm interested by how much you know there was a lot of skepticism I think after Spectre but it seems to be pretty warmly received even in a review like yours Richard that's like not super enthusiastic like it seems like this is going to be a big movie regardless.
2: Yeah I definitely liked it more than Richard I think Um, you know to me it's the best one I've seen since Casino Royale and I think it's a nice send-off for Daniel Craig and... And I especially was really excited for the actresses that are in this one, Anna DeArmas and Lashana Lynch. And I think you know, I wanted more of them on the screen um, because anytime they were on, I just like loved those moments, especially and was smiling underneath my underneath my mask. It, you know, <laughs> to me, like every movie over two hours, it's too long. But I really did enjoy the last uh, maybe hour of it, especially. Um, I know Richard doesn't feel the same.
3: (laughs) I I like the first hour. Yeah. Um, I I think that when I I guess I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying just tonally speaking, it's very serious. And I get that they've been kind of sort of half by design, half by accident, kind of building to this saga conclusion. And so they felt they had to do something a bit weighty and say goodbye to Daniel Craig and and, and, and sort of conclude the, the sort of thematic I don't know, argument of these past five films. But man, like, as the Anna Diarmas section shows and, and various other points in that earlier stretch of the film, like, Bond, I think, is best when it's just kind of, you know, a little lighter and, you know, globe trotting and sort of having fun and, and doing, you know, making silly quips and all that. So my hope is that now that this era of Bond is over, you know, now that uh, the red era and we're going to go to, I don't know, whatever Taylor Swift's next album was, but um,
1: <laughs> 1989, I think uh, would be yeah, the okay. like 80s flashback Bond.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. It would be fun if like the Broccoli family was like, you know what? Like we that was great. But now we're going to go back to more discreet films, not so much of this serialization that has kind of necessitated the films getting more serious um, to, to kind of up the stakes. That would be a happy thing for me, I think, as a kind of lifelong, not diehard Bond fan, but but a fan.
1: It is interesting. You think about um, The Dark Knight gets credit for like making blockbusters serious and like, you know, the scope of a real movie. But Casino Royale comes out two years earlier and really does set the template What you're talking about, Richard, that like all these movies are serious and huge and like there's no room for lightness in them. Um, they really are, uh, you know, of a pair, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair,
2: Richard. I'd be excited for a light one after this, too. Um, but I think, you know, with the path that these movies were on, this is the way to to end it. uh and I think if people audiences go in, maybe with our our warning that we're giving them now, not expecting the light, they may not uh, they may like the way this one goes. But we'll see.
3: That's true. I, I think I just it would be nice if in the future you could go see a Bond film and not worry about not having seen the previous one or not remembering the mm-hmm. details of the previous one. Mm. Before we started recording, Katie and I were sort of marveling at the fact that Spectre somehow came out six years ago. Like <laughs> it feels like it was two, three years ago max. And like I hadn't I foolishly didn't rewatch that movie or even read the Wikipedia plot summer before seeing mm-hmm. this new one. And I was like, wait, who what what is going on? You know Oh my God. I, I just wanna I just want a bond where you're like, okay, I know, like there's Money Penny, there's Bond, there's M go. You know, yeah. there's Villain and and that's all you need to know.
1: God, asking me to remember a single plot point from Spectre that is uh <laughs> that is way beyond the pale. There's no way I got I'm gonna have to brush up on that Wikipedia page first.
3: It actually helps to go back and read all of the plot descriptions from Casino Royale to Spectre, because that's what I did before writing my review, just to like bone up on like how this is all roughly connected, even though I don't think it was always planned to be connected.
4: That's a lot of work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I knew they were all connected while I was watching any of those movies. I've seen all of them. I think that was kind of like
3: retconned sort of by including the Blowfield character Inspector, where mm-hmm. he was like, I've actually been yeah. pulling the strings the whole time behind all of the villains of the past three films. Yeah. And you were like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I love Skyfall and, like, that one I remember, like, feeling pretty contained within itself, Um, even though, it's, like, they've tried to undo that in the past. Um, And I was thinking about Skyfall, again, and thinking about Oscars because that movie felt like it came kind of close to a Best Picture nomination at that point. Like, and it yeah. was – there were a lot more blockbusters to choose from that year and we don't really have that many this year. Does that give you guys any sense that, like, this movie might really make a run for it?
4: I think they're trying, but – I'm just not sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, like if you, if you want to have a blockbuster, you know, we're having a full 10 this year, um, which David, you and I have talked about like could make room for some really interesting things. And if you want to have a big blockbuster in there, like it's kind of, I guess, Dune, West Side Story, and this really? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's it. I mean, I, I
4: think it depends on how strong that sentiment is, especially when I think Dune is probably pretty safely in that 10. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think West Side Story is a huge question mark right now and could go very strongly in either direction uh, yeah. in terms of its Oscar chances. But um, yeah, I, I think there is going to be some sentiment with the send off and um, a strong campaign. There's also just like the big question of like MGM suddenly having several contenders and how they balance them and what they prioritize uh, including like pizza all of their movies are unknown i mean house of gucci is an unknown as well so Mm -hmm. there's a lot that i think that they have to sort of figure out internally um before deciding just how viable this might be
1: yeah is billy eilish gonna win an oscar for that song
2: song is gonna be really competitive but i i think she'll definitely be in the conversation didn't
1: it win a grammy already oh yeah. yeah it was a it one best song written for visual media Yeah, was,
4: i knew it
3: was eligible before so
1: oh that's really incredible
3: well, sorry what is it going to be competing with the beyonce song from king richard
1: what, um what? let's see we were just talking about this in um in Slack. like limo miranda has vivo and then also another animated movie and then also i think there's original songs in tic-tac boom uh there's mm-hmm. original dear evan hansen songs diane warren's out there this year um, is there an original
4: in west side story
3: Yeah, they wrote a a big ballad aria for (laughs) Officer Krupke, I think. (laughs) Living for it, but it's like got a pop kind of beat behind it. It's it's going to be like a top forty thing, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, original song is uh, my endless fascination, and every year it's just hard to like figure out what in the world to expect from it. I think there's an original one in the heights, if that you know manages to come swinging back around. And then respect, I. Think
2: who would have one with just Jennifer Hudson.
1: Right, right, right. Just like the Leslie Adam Jr. um Sam Cooke song last year, where it's like, here's a song that's sort of like this famous musician that the movie's about.
4: It is not. just a lot of musicals that landed with kind of a whimper for one reason or another. So yeah. Oh, and, and the Diane Warren song for Macbeth, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that Francis McNorbin sings, right? Which like, it yeah.
4: it plays over the outdamn spot monologue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is distracting. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I need to do some some original song research because again, I'm always fascinated by it. We'll have a, we'll have a whole segment. Maybe we'll like listen to clips from the uh, from the contenders. But I guess if you wanted to put money on it now, saying Billie Eilish will win an Oscar is not a bad. I mean, if Sam Smith won for that song, Billie and Eilish
4: can didn't. Do Adele Adele went, won. Oh yeah, well, Adele right?
1: won for like a legitimately great song for a great movie, and then sent the Sam Smith song was not not it's great. like it,
4: it because it's such a thing um i think yeah. that 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 takes it so far and then when you have a lack a lack of strong competition that only bolsters the case so she was she's probably a default front runner right now that seems safe to say
1: yeah okay congr- i mean i i want to see what she'll wear to the oscars so let's do it
0: i'm alex schwartz i'm nomi fry i'm vincent cunningham and this is critics
3: at large a new yorker podcast for the culturally curious
1: Well, now we're going to share a segment that Richard and I recorded earlier this week with Chris Murphy, who is uh, our colleague and our um, resident theater nerd who watched the Tonys. Richard and I caught up on the Tonys as well. And it was an interesting award show, both for the way the show worked and for the winners. Um, So let's listen to that conversation. Well, Richard, between the two of us, uh, we each watch or we watch the whole Tonys because you watch the first half of the Tonys. I watch the back half uh, on Paramount Plus, both of us, which uh, we'll get into thats that usefulness as an app. Um, but that's why we needed another expert to bring in. So we have our colleague Chris Murphy. Hello, Chris.
0: Hi, so happy to be back to talk about the extravaganza that was the four-hour Tony Awards.
3: A show so big, one network couldn't contain it. It had to, <laughs> it had to spill into other platforms.
1: Streaming and network combined. Yeah. It is the future. Um, I was going to say, Chris, that people don't know your Broadway having from the show, but because you've been on here to talk about Chicago, I think people might people might be uh, getting the sense that you are our Broadway kid above all at the
0: Yeah, I feel like I lead with that. So if they don't, (laughs) if they don't get it, I don't think that's on me. I think I'm pretty clear that I am a Broadway junkie, theater kid, you know, all of that.
1: And you had seen a good number of the nominees. I mean, you'd seen them, uh, you know, like two and a half years ago, but you had seen a lot of these nominees, right?
0: In the late '90s, I saw <laughs> Slave play. Um, yeah, no, I know, but I have seen a bunch of them. Not every show, but I have seen a bunch of them. Um, though it does feel, you know, eons ago. Yeah. In so many ways.
1: Yeah. Well, we we should talk about the winners of the Tonys themselves, Uh, but I wanted to talk about it as a show, too, because I think, you know, even more so than the little Goldman listeners who might see Broadway shows, like, how you put on an award show right now, I think, is a really interesting question, and it's an advantage the Tonys always have, because they have all these performers who can jump on stage and just, like, stun everyone without anything around them, you know, seeing acapella, and they're fine, and they really leaned into that, especially in the back half of the show, which is what I watched, where they had all these, like, big performances with, uh, you know, reuniting Kristen Chenoweth and Adida Menzel, Um, but overall, Chris, having watched the, uh, the the Paramount Plus part and then also the CBS part, uh, how did you feel like they did as a show?
0: I feel that the Tonys really sort of played with the extent of what an award show can be. It sort of morphed into something that wasn't exactly an award show in the back half, which I think is fine. I mean, Broadway's been gone for 565 days. That kept coming up. That number kept coming up over and over again or Mm -hmm. around there. And so I do feel uh, theater and the theater industry has sort sort of deserved, you know, having sort of a a massive, expanded, somewhat bloated <laughs> award show. One well, feels two parts. bloated about
1: four hours. <laughs> I know,
0: crazy. And you know, <laughs> crazy that I'm using that word to describe it. Um, so I do feel it's somewhat deserved. But during the third hour, I sort of was like, okay, all right. We've sort of, <laughs> I sort of, I even, someone who can't get enough of this stuff, you know, goes down YouTube rabbit holes of, Kristen Chenoweth and Adina Menzel singing for good had had enough. Um, so, but I will say some things that I did like about it. I do like that there were some performances that had really nothing to do with the show or sort of the current season. I thought Ali Stroker in the first half did a really lovely job singing What I Did for Love. Jennifer Holiday, that was an iconic moment, no matter how you felt about it, Seeing Jennifer Holiday Recreate her Tony Award-winning performance of And I'm Telling You I'm Not Going, you know, 40 years later, was absolutely iconic. And she's
1: performed it on the Tonys at the time, too. Like, I've watched that video of just her Tonys performance from whenever that was.
0: One of the most famous Tony performances of all time. And so that's not really for, like, I, I think it makes sense that both of those were at the sort of the, the, the precursor, sort of like the theater kids table Tonys of Paramount+. <laughs> Plus. That wasn't really for a mass audience, because I think that's something that really lands with people who appreciate the art form and who really who are really obsessed with it. But there was, for every sort of moment like that that was really special or really sort of iconic, there were a lot of things that, you know, really we didn't necessarily need. I would say uh, the Freestyle Love Supreme um, improv ending was gratuitous at best.
1: And that was after they had done, like, half an hour worth of performances after the final award. Like, it was just, it was going on and on at that point.
0: Which sounds crazy. It sounds like when you say that, like, you're making it up. (laughs) But (laughs) that's truly what happened. It was 45 minutes performed. Is after we would given out the final award. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think it's daring. I mean, I also love that they really didn't play anyone off. I mean, I know. I mean, I know, Katie, you agree with this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, give me the speeches. Make it like, make it long to uh, to an extent, um, because I am curious to hear what you know the creative teams and the scenic designers and what all these people have to say because their mm-hmm. art is just as important as you know the stars and the supporting actresses and the leading actor um, and the directors. Uh, and it was such a, a harsh sort of like shift from the Emmys where, you know, they were playing people off with 42 seconds into their speeches, you know, getting these sort of longer, longer speeches was pretty special. But yeah, I found myself sort of careening from being like, oh my God, I'm having such a great time. This is so weirdly specific and odd, but I'm, it's so for me to being like, I cannot believe that we have 99 more minutes left of this (laughs) broadcast.
3: Chris and I uh, wrote something for VF.com last week about going back to Broadway. We both went to go see uh, Come From Away on its first night back, and Chris had seen a couple other shows previous to that. And I think the biggest thing that we wrote about and and sort of felt in, you know, in the theater was that, like, there is this effusive, like, we're back. They were, like, four standing ovations before the show even started, really. Like, the ending was just, like, I feel like we were standing for 20 minutes, you know, which is as various (laughs) things happened. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) You know, and I think that that spirit, that infectious kind of, like, aren't you so excited? Like, didn't you miss this? That was palpably conjured up, even just watching, you know, on Paramount Plus the day after, uh, in my case, I think that what hampered it as a broadcast and and what hampered that feeling was that they were like, oh, and we also have to give out awards. And that was not Mm. the CBS Mm broadcast. It was just the streaming. But especially in a year when the winners and the nominees and there were controversies surrounding so many categories and and in terms of what won, that it put this kind of like lopsided, you know, kind of grim like – hampering effect on this thing that was supposed to be so celebratory, you know? So I kind of feel like maybe they should have just said, hey, sorry, 2019 to 2020 season people, we're going to have a dinner for you and give you your awards and put out a press release instead of the Tonys, we're going to do this big Broadway's back spectacular. Hmm. Um, so that isn't kind of affected by imbalances in the winners list.
1: Well, we should talk about the winners because that seems to be like when you go through and look at the list of the winners, it's like, four shows that won all of the awards and we talked about this with the Tony's last week Um, but Chris I was looking at your tweet about slave play in particular and I think that's the one that got the most attention for just like how in the world did this happen because it won nothing it was the most nominated show that is it's insane especially given like how high profile the show was so can you just I mean your tweet kind of said a lot but you just want to expand on your tweet about why that felt so stinging
0: well, yeah, I mean, there was, I think Richard really hit the nail on the head where there is such a celebratory, like, Broadway is back feeling, and I'm, on top of that, there was a very big, and there was a huge emphasis in the show about how black Broadway is, Broadway is back, Broadway is black, saying Leslie Odom Jr. multiple times, Um and the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, which is a group that's sort of dedicated to making Broadway a more equitable place, won a special Tony in the first half of the show and performed in the second half of the show, and while that's all well and good, when Slave Play, which whether or not you liked it, a very controversial piece, was the most nominated play of Tony history, probably the most impactful, one of the most impactful pieces of theater that I've seen in the last, you know, 10 years, and clearly has created sort of a, a, a legacy for itself. Um, when that show goes O for 12, it makes all of the, you know, Broadway is Black, all of the, the the talk about how much Broadway needs to change, it feels like lip service. It doesn't feel... Like, <laughs> um, anyone is doing anything more than just paying lip service to this idea or creating any sort of meaningful change. And it just really sort of highlights the chasm between, at least for me, the chasm between talking about making change and being inclusive and bringing more people to the table, which is what Kenny Leon said during his pretty wild and kind of fantastic speech, accepting best uh, best play for, best revival of a play for a soldier's play. But... It's very easy to say something and then not deliver um, in regards to action. And obviously, you know, awards are... Subjective, They are, <laughs> are somewhat meaningless, even though we all know that, you know, there's a lot of cachet and money and access and power that gets that is to be gotten from winning awards. Uh, it just highlights this huge, huge, big cliff that I don't think the Tonys or really any awards body um, or even really the entertainment industry has been able to sort of build a bridge over between wanting to celebrate like really exceptional work from black artists and actually celebrating that.
1: Yeah, and if, I mean, we talked about this last week with the Emmys, too, when, you know, Michaela Cole winning one Emmy for I May Destroy You. It's up against Nervy's Town and these really great shows, and you kind of see how, like, one individual thing can't do that. But when you see, a, you know, a zero and 12 category, it becomes bigger than that, you know? It's not just like, oh, well, they, like this other person was better. Like, was A Christmas Carol really better in every <laughs> possible category? I, know, I didn't see A Christmas Carol. Maybe it was great.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, wow, I missed that. Nobody from that show even showed up for the Tonys. Cause oh, they that's were like, a bummer. Yeah, that was really wild. But exactly. And I do think... So, not that it was like a head-to-head between *Slave Play* and *The Inheritance*, but *The Inheritance* back in March of 2020, there were articles in the New York Times that were like, "Why wasn't *The Inheritance* a hit? Why didn't it work?" Whereas *Slave Play* was sort of uh, far and away a smash success. That was also changing things in terms of the Broadway model of releasing tickets at a lower price point so that more diverse audiences could get and even see the production. It was not only was it a sort of a subversive and progressive piece of art. It also was changing the very model that (laughs) Broadway ticket sales sort of work under. Um, So to see it sort of lose repeatedly to, again, not even, I enjoyed, you know, one fourth of the inheritance, which also (laughs) sort of felt like (laughs) the Tonys in that it was incredibly, incredibly long. But I, you know, I enjoyed some of the inheritance, but to see it lose sort of to a more sort of traditional, less challenging production. That, at the end of the day, even if we're talking about, you know, award, you know awarding shows based on their success in the box office, Slave Play <laughs> was more successful than The Inheritance. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that Slave Play is coming back this season in November. It was announced today. Slave Play is coming back. The Inheritance is closed for good. So it just, it brings up a lot of questions about what we award and why we award it and how much we really want to as a community or a society award challenging black art or art that isn't, you know, that goes against the norm in a really sort of visceral way.
3: I do want to push back on one thing you said, Chris. I I think you know, the New York theater scene has never really recognized stuff about gay white men. So I just felt like... <laughs>
0: never. You know... Angels in America who?
3: Especially when, when <laughs> actors who are straight win awards for the that, you know, that work. Um I think also, you know, there was also the Jagged Little Pill controversy, which yeah. surrounds the way that they've been treating their actors, specifically uh, actors of color and non-binary actors and the controversy over Lauren Patton's role and she won a Tony mm-hmm. last night. But that aside, which is the most pertinent aspect of of the Jagged Little Pill controversy, Moulin Rouge and Jagged Little Pill, it was two jukebox musicals yeah. winning everything. And I know that that was because of a truncated season partly, but it just was like Broadway's back and then all of this depressing shit
0: happened, <laughs> you know? And Well, it was the just- Tina
1: Turner musicals, technically jukebox too. I mean, I think that one got a little bit more critical acclaim.
0: There was not even one Best Original Musical nominated for Best Original Score for <laughs> for yeah. musicals. all plays because there were no original scores in the season, which is a huge, huge, huge problem.
1: Yeah.
0: But The Jagged Little Pill, I definitely would direct people who are listening who want to learn more about that to uh, read Nora Schell's, um, their tweets and their sort of posts about their experience in A Jagged Little Pill. And I will say... To Lauren Patton's credit, she did address the controversy in her speech. She didn't sort of ignore it. Diablo Cody didn't really mention anything regarding sort of the uh, controversy surrounding Jagged Little Pill when she accepted her award. Um, But yeah, it felt like we had—to Richard's point— It felt like the celebratory, we're back. It's so exciting that Broadway's back that we're just going to sort of like glean over all of these other really sort of problematic uh, and systemic issues that rose to the surface in this quarantine period when there was no Broadway. And we're just not going to really mention that because right now that's not what the vibe is. The vibe is like, we're happy that we're back. So like, let's not even talk. Nobody even said the word Scott Rudin, which I think is kind of insane. Wow. (laughs) Given everything that has come out about, you know, his practices and how you know in how central sort of to Broadway. Kind
1: of Broadway... yeah, how how Central Broadway, in addition to movies he 's been yeah yeah, not
0: not a single person said a word about any of that, and again, obviously, I think what Richard said is right this was as much as this was an award show, it was really more of a commercial for please <laughs> come back to the theater mm-hmm. and look at how much, and also like look at the you know the spirit and the the perseverance of the theater community we 've gotten through or they 've gotten through almost two years of darkness, which is something to be celebrated. But it did feel like it masked a sort of insidious underbelly that... It was just better not to talk about because look, we can just watch Ben Platt and Anika Noni Rose sing. <laughs> move
1: they on. were great, though. <laughs> they
0: were—they have beautiful voices. I do feel like they were sort of singing in completely different worlds. But, oh, that's what your subtweet was about. <laughs> sorry, yes, I, I should not have even said that on this program. Uh, but bo- gorgeous voices, even though Jake Gyllenhaal and Emily Ashford were both in the audience. Or that was—that was weird that
1: they were. And both Bernadette there.
0: Peters was also there, so just sort of interesting that they made them sing that. But that being said, it was amazing to see them. You know these beautiful voiced people get up on stage and just, and wow, with just a microphone and their voice. You don't see that at the Oscars. You don't see that at the Emmys. It's something that really only theater people have. But like Richard said, we would be remiss not to mention, like there is a lot of stuff that was not really talked about or addressed that really needs to be sort of uh, addressed in the future.
1: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, just the Tonys and the Grammys, I think, do better than any other award show being like, here's an advertisement for our industry. Here is what is worthwhile about what we do. And it's just kind of the format of it. Um, but in terms of being like, get that feeling of being alive on stage, like you get Audra McDonald and Brian Stokes Mitchell back together on stage. Like, It's like <laughs> bottling the appeal of Broadway within three minutes. So kudos to them for, I think, pulling off what, you know, the financial imperative they really have to just get people to come back.
0: Oh, yeah. I made my boyfriend. He was like, what's that song? I've never even heard that song before. And I was like, okay, now we're going to YouTube and I'm going to make you watch all of the Ragtime Prologue and then Wheels of a Dream. So it it did succeed in that. And Audra was an amazed. She did a really great job as hosting it the first half, I will say. I would love to. She can do no wrong in my eyes.
3: Yeah, and I, as someone who watched the DVD of the leading ladies, the Broadway thing, from the late 90s, and we, we were my friends and I were particularly obsessed with Jennifer Holiday singing, I, and I am telling you, to see her do that, at 60-something years old, like, and still sounding incredible, like, that was really cool, and I, I, there were, you know, there were nice things about it, you know, like, I know that I am and Chris you are and you know a lot of people are I am really excited that not just like cool off-Broadway stuff is reopening but actual you know big commercial Broadway because that that Mm -hmm. does have a certain magic to it and you know it was cool to see Danny Burstein finally win and Mary Louise Parker getting a very deserved award for her incredible work in The Sound Inside and like you know there were happy moments it just had this weird like I feel like for every happy thing that happened, then like three unfortunate things would occur (laughs) immediately after.
0: Absolutely. And I will say, yeah, I was so happy to see, you know, Danny Burstein and David Alan Greer and Lois Smith sort of win these legacy Tonys for their great work in these these shows. Um, And I will say Mary Louise Parker gave sort of the blueprint for an amazing acceptance speech. Every single person who's ever about to win an award should sort of just watch her acceptance speech. That's how you do it. And you hit, you know... You hit your agents, you hit you, well, you hit your personal life, you you hit your other uh your other nominees. Her love letter to Laura Lenny at the beginning of the speech. I was like, I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> um but for every moment like that, then you get, you know, an Aaron Tevate who literally was sort of the only nominee in his category. Literally
1: and- the only nominee. The ballot <laughs> said, Do you give Aaron Tveit a Tony or not? Which yeah. <laughs> which really made me wonder if he just didn't win, how weird Halfway that would be. Through, I was like,
0: if he doesn't win, I will literally <laughs> jump off of my <laughs> <laughs> roof. Like it would be so crazy if he doesn't win. But given that, and again, no shade to Aaron Tveit, I'm sure he was great in Moulin Rouge. I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, his speech sort of was a long list of thinking people in the industry who sort of helped him get to a certain place, which, you know... Well, that's all well and good and that happens a lot, I was sort of hoping that maybe because he sort of was definitely going to win, you you know, we get something a little bit more exciting, a little bit more personal. He did get choked up at the end, which was nice. But yeah, it, there was a weird, it was just a weird mix. And it also felt very, and I would love to hear what both of you think, read the separate halves of the telecast. It did feel sort of slapdash thrown together. The teleprompter work was weird. <laughs> and there was something, sort of like a rough and. Rumble quality to the mm. whole thing that, you know, I sort of love because live theater is sort of like that, but it sort of lacked a sort of polish that I would have expected from the literal Tony Awards.
1: The literal Tony My Awards. My guess
3: would be those were hard to rehearse, I guess, because of protocol stuff, but maybe not. Like, but it did feel a little rickety-ticky. It was a little bit like, okay, like, is this all gonna kind of fall apart? <laughs> Any exactly. second. Um But, you know, I guess there was some of that kind of like scrappy quality. Um, Audra McDonald, at one point, c- they came back for a commercial and she just kind of quietly said Audra McDonald because she was reading from the teleprompter. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: the, an and,
3: and then moment. she like bounced back from it and she laughed. And it was really like, oh, like this is live and organic and whatever. Um, That's really so, funny. Yeah.
0: It was. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And it's like, I love moments like that. And then there was Andre DeShields, like, waiting for... He was introducing Ali Stroker, who won a Tony for Oklahoma two years ago now. Um, and he, he was waiting to say the name of the play, which she won a Tony for, and he took a very long pregnant pause before he said... Oklahoma, <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that I will simply never forget. It was so distinguished and so powerful, but clearly just the teleprompter wasn't working. So there were plenty of moments like that. That That's sort of why we love award shows. Um, and there were plenty of moments of why we don't love award shows. Yeah. Re, you know, certain, you know, realities. I would say it's realities. And, you know, I don't know why of all of the all of the opening numbers that we could have sort of landed on, to sort of bring us back to Broadway. We started with sort of the original cast of Hairspray singing You Can't Stop the Beat without sort of any dancing or any choreography, just sort of standing there with microphones. Matthew Morrison, the Grinch's own Matthew Morrison, <laughs> misremembering the words to this number was sort of an odd way to start. Um, and that, I just, I would love to talk to whoever made that decision and just <laughs> sort of pick their brain about why that that was how we began.
1: Leslie the Newman Jr. had choreography in his opening number for his half, so oh, they, they got that part together.
0: So suave, so good, so yeah, cool.
1: Really good. Um, I mean him and Audra McDonald both as hosts makes me think about like what the Oscar version of this like that's getting Tom Hanks a to host the Oscars you know and like obviously they're so comfortable they know everybody in the room they have so much authority in that space I think especially Audra McDonald like maybe that is a good answer for the Oscars like stop bringing in talk show hosts like bring in somebody who like everyone in the room will like listen to and want to respect when they're up there.
0: Yeah. I mean I don't I didn't miss a, a comedian. No shade to Neil Patrick Harris, but I was like, yeah, let's get let's get an Audra or a Leslie Odom yeah. to sort of run the ceremony. Someone that is we know, you know, has earned the respect of of everyone in the room. And there were some funny bits, you know. I enjoy you know, I enjoy a Josh Grobin, you know, comedic <laughs> number. <Yeah. laughs> sure. You know, there were some really fun, uh fun moments. And I will say having the legacy duets that was just so fantastic, even though it was after the last award was given out, but having oh my God. Uh, What You Own, Adam Pascal, and Anthony Rapp, Kristen and Adina singing For Good in perfect voice, me, cut to me, choking back tears, and then the pièce de résistance, Audra McDonald and Brian Stokes Mitchell truly having the time of their lives singing Wheels of a Dream. That That captured the magic of Broadway in a way that just... I don't know. Nothing else really in the night. I think hit in terms of at least uh, you know, in a bam 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 like one two three punch. It was so. It was like that's what that's what we that's what we came here for. That's what we yeah. want to see. It yeah. was
3: a great note to end on. And they cut to people in the audience, and despite them having been there, you know, since that afternoon, like they <laughs> they seemed very wrapped because it was an incredible moment. And I think you know, per your suggestion, Katie you know, Audra only hosted the first half of the show, but she was a host, and then she sang at the very end. So if we got Tom Hanks or Meryl Streep or Denzel Washington to host the Oscars, they would have to perform some sort of dramatic scene at the end. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think, I mean... I'd
0: be fine with. Denzel Washington's literally
1: in Macbeth right now, so have him host the Oscars and then perform a soliloquy at the end. There you go.
0: They should pay us for that idea, because that's actually brilliant. (laughs)
1: That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com with New York Film Festival coverage. Rebecca, you're going to a big uh, a party at the Academy Museum. So by the time people hear this episode, they can read your report from that, which I'm excited to hear about. Are you, are you ready? I'm I'm ready to be in a room full of
2: elegantly dressed people again for the first time. So I'll <laughs> let you know how it goes. <laughs> we'll all be wearing
1: masks when they're indoors, yes. just to be clear. So, yeah, find that. Uh, in the meantime, you can uh, find us on Twitter at little gold Men, and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David.
4: David Canfield, 97.
1: And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text us and receive text from us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7169. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of the Daniel Craig, James Bond era goes to David Canfield.
4: The Soggy Bottom era.